Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. It's Monday night, January 13th, 2020. We're a little bit late getting around to the podcast this week because we've been gallivanting. We've been to Mohonk Mountain House for the annual Jazz on the Mountain, which is choreographed by... The great Michael Bourne. Oh, great. Yeah, it's... it's the uh, uh, disc jockey of uh, well, he fame works, on WBGO. Yeah, well, he doesn't work there anymore, really, but WBGO sponsors it. They're a big jazz station in Newark. He's been with the station years, and he's run this event for Mohawk for years, and he has his acolytes, and they all come up for this one weekend, and they're like regulars, uh, others besides. But the way it's set up is that you have... Three days in which there's going to be a concert, uh, morning, uh, midday, and night. Uh, so you total like eight or nine concerts, and uh, in a kind of a small setting, and with some very accomplished jazz artists, um, and it's kind of fantastic. When you say, well, it's hilarious to hear jazz at ten a.m. Yeah, and uh, the, the uh, poor guys who have to drag themselves out to do it are just uh, astonished at themselves that they're even awake, uh, not just uh, creating fabulous music. Well, the other thing is you don't know what you're going to see exactly. I mean, it's kind of a vague description of what the events are going to be, but they do have their regulars, and um, uh, you have the name, you have the list of names there, and we've gotten to know it because we were there last year. So, of course, we saw Helen Sung, the pianist, Dave Stryker, the guitarist, uh, Scott Robinson, plays all the uh, horn instruments, basically. Uh, Martin Wynn, who plays the bass. Um, those are the the regulars. Um, and uh, they do a heck of a lot of improvising. I mean, they're obviously friends, but they don't see each other necessarily that often. And uh, it's uh, magical. I mean, I did, they produce a lot of great music. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been going on for 21 years. Right. And over time... Uh, Bourne has created his, you know, favorites uh, staff, you know, the people who really work with him and help him curate uh, the group. He tries to have uh, newcomers. He tries to have old favorites. And uh, it is a chance to hear jazz music, pretty accessible jazz, around the clock. Well, it's not always accessible. That's why I'm always interested that. You go for it because a lot of it is esoteric. No, it's not, Daniel. Uh, no, it's not. We've we've heard uh, much crazier stuff. We have in the past year. Um, this is really on the accessible uh, end of things, and you know it was really fun. It's uh, as you say because it's in a hotel. Yeah. Uh, in the Mohawk Mountain House, which is a magical place in upstate New York. And uh, it's a little over 150 years old, right around 150 years old. We've talked about it before because Sadie and I go there for uh, our uh, annual getaway together. And our family's been going there for many years. My great-grandmother went there. Um, there are rumors that my father's parents went there okay. uh, for um, their honeymoon. Right. Well, now you're okay. going... So now we're... It's a historical place. Well, we're going... But the jazz is, with a nod to history, I mean, a lot of the music was dedicated 
to some jazz masters. Yeah, who, but very contemporary people, people who passed away in the last year. No, but they have a respect for tradition. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, they really, uh, that's just kind of fun because that adds to uh, that community atmosphere, that family atmosphere, that even though we've only been there twice out of 21 years, we feel like part of the... Right. The, it's a small gathering, really. And sometimes you find yourself sitting next to the performers themselves who come out to sit in the audience. Yeah. I mean, and, we're in the second row. Right. We're four or five feet away from and we have seen, amazing music. We've been to jazz clubs and to see some of these people, and it's hard to get that close to anyone. So it's it's just it's it's an amazing you know look there are some misses, and they brought in some big names too on some performances, and some of those were misses they just didn't fit what they're doing, but that's okay. Well, the, part of that is the spontaneity of it. Yeah. Okay. And uh, some people can do that. Some people can come up with a good program, and uh, you know, it, in some cases it doesn't quite work. But that's you know. That's what creativity is All about. I, know is- Let, I want to mention more of the people we heard. Um, Andy Milne, pianist. Allison Miller's group, yeah. Boom Tick Boom. Allison Miller uh, was a delight. She's a drummer. And uh, she actually had a lot of anecdotes mm-hmm. um, that uh, really humanized her. And her music is quite interesting and I thought rather uh, theatrical, but she had uh, a very interesting group. Then there was Dave Stryker's eight-track band. Right. Stryker is uh, a very expert uh, guitarist from West Orange, and he talked about uh, l- a little bit about uh, yes. living in West Orange. We spent some time with his wife in the hot tub. Yes, and she told us about West Orange too. Um, and uh, his. Uh, the eight-track band has had tremendous success this year. Yeah, from and, nowhere. Uh, and they were uh, a terrific group success. as well, um, with uh, a lot of uh, interesting people in it. They had uh, Joe Doubleday on the vibraphone, Jared Gold on organ, McClenty Hunter on drums, Myra Casals on percussion. So um, those were some of the greats. There was also uh, the great Helen Sung, who did... A just a terrific series of duets, okay? One with a drummer, one with a bassist, one with the, um, Scott Robinson, I think on the saxophone, and uh, with Dave Stryker on the guitar, piano, and uh, one of those, each of those instruments at the time. And uh, those were spectacular, probably one of the best concerts I've ever heard. And again, it was pretty spontaneous. These are, you know, masters getting up and saying, all right, we're going to do something together. What is it? Okay. And a one and a two and a three. Well, look, the amazing thing is we're not big jazz fans and uh, we know a little bit. And uh, it's fantastic. It's in a fantastic event. Next year, it's going to be in January again, late in the month next year. And uh, you should look into it. Yeah. I mean, part of the fun is that it is so creative, mm-hmm. that it is spontaneous and yeah. engaging. And everybody, all the performers want to be there. They're having a good time, having a good time with each other. They're doing some very creative work, and uh, it's just a tremendous atmosphere. Yeah. So that was fun, and uh, but uh, we heard a lot of music. We sat in a lot of concerts, but we also did a fair amount of hiking and swimming, etc., uh, so now we got to get back 
to reality. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about some of the things that uh, we realized are going on uh, while we were up in the woods. And uh, I was glancing at the New York Times. There's a fun article about skating trails, ice skating trails in Canada, written by uh, Elaine Glusak, who loves to skate. And uh, she heard there are these trails in Canada, like hiking trails, right? Hmm. But they're ice. They're skating. You're not sitting there. You know, the one thing I always loved about the Hans Brinker stories was that concept of skating on the canals, the frozen Hmm. canals. That seemed like a, a really fun thing to do. Actually going from one place to another, not just doing that endless circle in the local rink right. near Montgomery Mall in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, or wherever it was. And uh, so um, apparently she was very intrigued by this and uh, went up to Quebec and explored some of these places. Some of them are, you know, kind of modest, little, uh, you know, you have a little park and uh, they'll do like a, a mile and a half long trail through the woods. They maintain them to a certain extent um, so that they're still skatable. And uh, because I'm not such an expert skater, some of it sounded a little uh, um, scary to me because, you know, you can have, uh, you're out in the woods, you can can have downhills and uphills and uh, there's some real challenges involved. But uh, she also mentioned... uh, Places that were, you know, more like private, um, I don't know, almost like amusement. Um, not a, not an amusement park, but just a, a um, you know, a family would put together like nine miles of trails through uh, their woods and maintain it with Zambonis, etc. Um, spraying. Okay. It, why, why are you... Uh, nine miles for Zambonis, that's really something. Yeah, well, they have like three Zambonis or three three different machines because they have to clear the ice. Yeah. They spray new water on top of the ice to you know uh, resurface it uh, as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a fairly big project, but uh, you know it sounds like a lot of fun. The little uh, snack huts and you know food trucks or whatever. So she went all around the place. Uh, to these various uh, locales, a lot of them in the countryside, some of them uh, near, uh, closer to the city. And it sounded... Uh, no, it does of, sound good. I didn't realize... It sounded pretty cool. When you first described it, I didn't realize it was that organized or that uh, maintained. I thought it was really, uh, you go out into the woods and there you go, but I guess not. Yeah. So that, you know, that sounds uh, uh, pretty fun to do, but um, one thing is true. It's cold. Yeah. Well, it's, you need that for it's the ice. Super cold you to have a, a good uh, skating trail. Right, so there's like a that. breaking sports story as of ten minutes ago, and we had mentioned this before. The Astros were being investigated for setting up uh, technology that, that allowed them to steal the signs of the pitchers who played in the ballparks, played in their own ballpark, uh, opposing the Astros. Uh, And that's illegal. And that uh, gave an an unfair advantage to the Astro hitters. And uh, particularly during the 2017 uh, playoffs and World Series, hard to imagine that story would have legs. And it turns out it does. So the the MLB comes out today 
uh, finding that the Astros did violate the rules, harshly penalizes them, suspends the manager of the team for a year, suspends the general general manager of the team for a year, takes away draft choices and the like. And the Astros respond by firing the manager and firing the general manager because they want nothing to do with them. And it's a real scandal. Um, I mean, it's a huge black eye for baseball. Maybe they're making too much of this. I don't know, but they're making a huge thing of it. And normally, uh, I might just say, well, um, I'm not really too involved in that, but it's kind of curious. But no, the Mets are involved. Well, that, that's what I was going to say. Does this have implications for the new coach? Yes, of course. So the Mets, who uh, can't do anything right ever, ever, naturally, who do they choose for the manager? Uh, Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran played for the Astros in 2017. What was one of the things the Mets talked about when they hired him? His ability to steal signs. Uh, now, uh, when he was interviewed during the investigation about this, he said he stole signs the old-fashioned way, you know, by looking at the pitcher, nothing to do with technology. Um, he did not get suspended. No players got suspended. Only management got suspended by MLB, but they found that he was not telling the truth. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so um, now what do the Mets do? I mean, there's going to be another situation involving Alex Cora, who became the manager of the Red Sox. Uh, what's going to happen to folks like that? MLB is not going to do anything about Beltron, but people are already saying the Mets have to get rid of Beltron. Uh, if they don't, this story is going to hang on. And Beltron, you know, Beltron's uh, English is not Beltron's first language. Mm -hmm. So this is probably going to get worse before it gets better. Um, Why do you say that? Because he's going to try to explain his way out of it. That he meant this and he meant that. And, uh, it was That's going to be difficult. Yeah. It's just going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. So um, it's... But is it possible the Mets were clueless about this or they just chose to ignore it? It is always possible the Mets were clueless. They certainly didn't know what was revealed today. And uh, it sounds like Beltran was not entirely honest with them about what was going on. So... Uh, I think they're, uh, they're stuck. Let me put it this way. If the Mets knew then what they know now, they would never have hired Beltron. Uh, what they do now, uh, we shall see. My guess is they'll stick with him for a while, but if the pressure becomes too much, they'll get rid of him. Although, is there any chance that the Mets uh, knew exactly what he was up no, to? No, The Mets needed no. or hoping no. for no. a little help? No. It, no. It, it, it's not important to have Beltron. He's not that big a deal as a manager. Why extend yourself? So, uh, go ahead. You had uh, something about books. Well, you know, the weather's been weird. Yeah. It's been way too warm for skating uh, on uh, outside on trails around here. In fact, it was flirting with uh, uh, 60s. It was in the 60s even up uh, in uh, New Paltz, where we were for right. the weekend. Um, so uh, it's not quite winter weather, but I think winter weather will come, and then you're going to want a good book. On that note, the New York Times published an article that takes a look at the top 10 books that have been checked out in the New York library system ever, okay, apparently. And here they are. Some of them are children's books, which makes sense because you check out those books over and over and over again uh, for your kids. Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats. 
I I don't know if that if you uh, you don't remember that at all. No, nope. yeah, I think you would recognize if you if you saw it. Here's one you know: Cat in the Hat, number two, yeah, by Doctor Zeus, four hundred sixty nine thousand uh, and change checked out. This one you know too: nineteen eighty four, by George Orwell. Okay. Okay. Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak. To Kill a Mockingbird is number five by Harper Lee. Charlotte's Web by E.B. White comes in at six. Seven is Fahrenheit 451. Hard to believe. Why, why, why do you say that? It's by Ray Bradbury. It was, ne- it was never that popular book when it was first written. I think, I feel like every, uh, over time, there are so many houses or summer houses that you could walk in and there'd be a paperback. Oh, no. Everyone knew the book. No one read the book. It was okay. It was a, it was medium well, science fiction. maybe they fiction. all took it out and tried to read it. And then, uh, that must it be it. Anyway, here's one. Yeah. How to Win Flens, Friends and Influence well, People. I can understand that. This is probably the oldest book on the... Uh, Dale Carnegie. Yeah, Dale Carnegie. Uh, here's a much newer one. Uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, makes sense. And not coming in at 10, The Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carle. Again, I think you would recognize it if you saw it. Maybe. All right. So tonight is the big national championship game in college football between LSU uh, and Clemson. Um, And uh, we'll find out who's going to win soon enough. Um, We won't know when we sign off here. But what's interesting is that... uh, the coaches in these games, uh, it's kind of bizarre. I mean, they have a cult of personality. The coach of Clemson is a guy named Dabo Swinney, or Dabo Sweeney, I guess. And uh, Dabo has this, um, you know, he's a very new age, get to know the player. We're all on the same page. Uh, he's coaching a school in Clemson, which represents South Carolina. And apparently has a hold on South Carolina such that they get all kinds of contributions from people in South Carolina who have nothing to do with Clemson. But they feel that Clemson represents the state. And it's important to them that Clemson does well. Well, I glanced at that article. It seemed to also say that uh, Clemson hasn't been that big in football until fairly recently. Uh, up, and it's up and down. really, they, they, really come on strong. They won the national championship in 1984. Remember when we went to California? Yeah. They won that year. But but uh, it has been up and down. But Swinney is is, is sort of uh, you know an evangelist, and he's an evangelist for football. Some say he's an evangelist for religion at the same time. But he approaches them the same way, and he he proselytizes football and school and everything together in uh, just a weird way. And maybe this is the way it's supposed to be when you're a coach these days. But here's the way he talks about it. He says winning football games is hard if you're not connected. You have to have an alignment, alignment of the board, the president, the athletic director, the coaches, and the fans. You got that? You know what he didn't That's mention? That's a lot. You know what he didn't mention? The players. <laughs> the players have nothing to do with it. What he's focusing on is getting contributions. More than anything else, he's getting the money he needs from the administration, and he's going to uh, these various potential contributors and he's making unbelievable pitches, and that's what turned that program around. What do you? What does he use the money for? All kinds of facilities. But there was uh, they have a story here in the Times in which, you know, some uh, family had just uh, contributed a hundred thousand dollars, and he visited them, 
And uh, after his visit, they made it two and a half million dollars uh, to improve the weight room or something like that. And he builds, he makes it a first class facility that's really, frankly, out of alignment with everything else about Clemson as a university. Nothing about Clemson is first class in terms of money, in terms of quality facilities, except the football stadium. And uh, it competes on that level. And he, as I say, he's, uh, I mean, there's some talk about evangelism. Even uh, one of the players, Sports Illustrated recently wrote, who's a very well-known player, DeAndre Hopkins, a top receiver for Houston. But when he was at Clemson, he was baptized on the football field. I mean, that's part of what's going on. So it's this either holy or unholy alliance of, uh, of state, of university, of religion, of football, and it's almost a movement. Uh, but it also sounds like... Uh... I get that part of it, yeah. But it also sounds like you know the New York Yankees or something. No, no, uh, no, no. Money no. will buy the no, championship. No no, 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 no. All this gets them is you know that just puts them on the par with nine other schools. Puts them on the par with Alabama with all. But it, it does. It's what's yeah, up but, their yeah, game. But, but the Yankee story is different. The Yankees are not on a par with nine others. They're above everybody else. You can't win a championship if nine people are doing as much as you are. That's not winning. That just puts you in in play. So he's bringing them forward money-wise to be a potential winner, but he's adding so much more in the way he's uh, asking from a commitment from players, from everybody, to make their number one priority, Clemson and Clemson football. Um, the guy I like is the coach of the other team, Ed Orgeron. Uh, or What's his name? Ed Orgeron, or his known Coach O. I cannot imitate his voice. My voice is a little rough today. It is nothing like Coach O. It is like sandpaper. It is is like uh, asphalt. You're gonna Harvey, hear it. Harvey uh, Firestein. Oh my God! It's nothing. It's like Harvey Firestein if he was, uh, you know, combined with a longshoreman. It is a rough, rough, tough way of speaking. He's a rough, tough-looking guy, and he's a Cajun, and he's in Louisiana. A raging Cajun. Well, I don't know what raging Cajun is, honestly, but he's a Cajun, uh, meaning that he was brought up in a very poor part of Louisiana, in which the Cajuns who come from the French have their own ways, and are looked down on by the rest of the state, a lot of the rest of the state. It's kind of low class to be a Cajun. And he has a tremendous Cajun accent, which makes him very difficult to understand, so much so that he he couldn't get certain jobs. He succeeded at various schools, but nobody wanted to hire him um, because he didn't sound like... uh, a top-level executive. He didn't sound sophisticated no, enough. No, he didn't. He, he sounds as unsophisticated as you could possibly sound. And he just, but you look at him, he looks like he's about to explode. So how does he win? Because he's coaching a football team. Uh, and, and when you bring that kind of intensity to the football uh, team and the players sort of share in that and draw on that, it sort of brings them to a next level. So he's focused on the players? Is that what you're telling me? They're all focused on the players. but I don't know if he's you focused on You just told me the other guy was not focused on no, the players. No, I didn't say. I didn't he say. left him no, of the no, equation. No, no, never said he's not focused on the players. I'm just saying he's running a huge organization. He probably he's, he's, a, he, he's a very new age guy. He loves the players. He gets along with the players. He's baptizing one of the players, for crying out loud. Okay, but Coach A must have the Coach O, rather, yeah. must have the same... Responsibilities no. in terms no, of no, fundraising, no, 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 no. Et cetera, yes, yes. The, but the difference is this: the difference is I don't know how to explain. I mean, if if you were meeting a smooth executive, if I said this man, I want to introduce you to the chairman of Wells Fargo, you know, uh, 
he would have a certain type of mannerisms. He would uh, deal with a particular way. He'd have a corporate personality. And he might even speak strongly with passion about Wells Fargo. That's one guy. The other guy is a street tough, street ready, you know, let's get down. Let's play seven on seven football right now. Couldn't be rougher. And with the accent, you know. I, I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. But how does he raise the money? I don't know what he raised money. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I don't, I'm not here to tell you how people raise money. But uh, all I'm saying is, as a football coach, to me, uh, he's much more appealing to me. And I, and LSU, frankly, uh, has had a great season. I'd be very disappointed if they lost. They've, they've played the toughest teams in, in the country. They've beaten the toughest teams in the country. They haven't won the national championship in like forever. And I think this is their year. I'm rooting for LSU. Yeah, well, you know, my family has uh, some connections to Clemson, so yeah, good luck with I'm that. Afraid uh, LSU, we will be will dominate on opposite sides yeah, of okay. the couch tonight. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's see, travel. If anybody's thinking about going to Ghent, yeah. it would be a good time to go to go to the Ghent Fine Arts Museum. And uh, see what I think of as the Ghent altarpiece uh, by um, Jan van Eyck. Uh, now, you know, you've seen this in person. We went to Ghent uh, and we saw it in St. Bavo's Cathedral. Do you yeah. remember that? Yes. Behind glass, okay, it's an altarpiece. It's all these panels joined together and it's, you know, it can be folded or unfolded, etc. But the point is, it's a magnificent work of art by Jan van Eyck um, from about 1430. But it's hard to see because you can't get very close, okay? Um, it's been restored. It's had a huge restoration going on. There's going to be more restoration going on. Before that happens, they have taken the panels apart and they are putting them on view in the museum at eye level. So you can see every miraculous brushstroke. Not that you can actually see brushstrokes. Um, they are so um, perfect. Uh, but you can see every little hair on um, the legs of the nude uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, so it's uh, it's really a spectacular opportunity um, to see one of uh, what uh, the museum is calling one of the earliest great examples of European oil painting. Then um, it's going to be there. It's going to be on view February first to April thirtieth. Um, and uh, it's uh, going to be also accompanied with a bunch of, you know, sort of contemporary works of art to give you some basis of contrast. Also about a dozen of Jan van Eyck's other works, which would amount to about half of his known works. So uh, it's kind of a now or never opportunity hmm. to see these things. Now or never. Right. It's a tough uh, choice. Well, they're really they're really spectacular. The Adam and Eve are the first uh, um, full size nudes that uh, are seen in painting since I don't know antiquity at that point. And uh, Adam looks like he's his foot is stepping out of the frame into sort of our reality. I mean, it's just uh, an amazing feat. The op optical illusions that uh, Jan van Eyck brings to bear with 
that magical combination of oil okay. and uh, light and shadow and the way he uses it. Uh, one of the things that won't, one of the pieces that won't uh, be restored, as I said, more of it's going to be restored. It gets better and better. Um, you know, the Gandalf piece has been through a lot. It, it, it uh, got stolen. It got taken by the Nazis. It got retrieved. It's been, uh, it's been through battle. Uh, but one panel in particular, a couple of panels were literally stolen and disappeared. And uh, one of them is still missing, called The Just Judges. Mm. And uh, so there is a uh, reproduction, a fake that was painted to put in its place. And it actually has kind of yellowed varnish over it to make it look old, like the rest of the panels. Now that the rest of the panels have been uh, conserved... The uh, reproduction panel, the Just Judges, looks too old and doesn't fit in. So there are discussions about uh, how the um, the reproduction should be conserved as well. Anyway, um, you remember St. Bavos. We went there. Uh, you were not overwhelmed by the Ghent altarpiece. But when we stepped out, that it's in a separate little section. When we stepped out of that section, that area, where you go to see the altarpiece into the main church, there was a fantastic brass ensemble oh, yeah. having a rehearsal. Yeah. And uh, that was just that was a good. delight. That was fun. Yeah. Okay, so Ghent, February through April. Uh, Tough place to get to. You know, we like Ike. <clears throat> Make your reservations now. Um, Buck Henry died. Uh, so, um, Buck Henry was uh, basically a comedy writer uh, and an actor. Uh, what interested me um, about reading about Buck Henry's life that I vaguely recalled, of course, well, I certainly remembered he wrote The Graduate, which was, uh, you know, his principal accomplishment. And to be known as the screenwriter for The Graduate is kind of a huge deal. But a, a bigger deal than I realized. But here's something I didn't know, Tamsin. You tell me if you knew this. Uh, graduate was 1968. It was the number one movie in America for months in 1968. It became the third highest grossing movie in history up to that time, behind only Gone with the Wind and The Sound of Music. Really? That I did not know. That That's... I did not know. I certainly knew what The Graduate was. Yeah. And I saw it, but uh, I had no idea. That is stunning. I mean, the graduate, sound of music, yeah, it's, and it's, Gone with the Wind, the top three grossing pictures of all time. I don't, yeah, you know, I don't really see that, but okay. Well, the sound, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the graduate was, as they, the Times describes it, the graduate captured a moment of unease in the American uh, zeitgeist. Um, the film caught the alienation of American young who sensed before their parents did that the world was entering a whole new place. And it was about Dustin Hoffman playing the main character, Benjamin Braddock, and how he was trying to figure out his place in the world and whether the world made any sense to him or not. It was a little bit of a counterculture picture. It was a little bit, uh, I mean, it was funny. It was terribly offbeat. And, of course, at the centerpiece was the fact that Dustin Hoffman's character had an affair with Anne Bancroft, which is she was the wife of his family's best friend. So... Uh, I wonder if it was right there with Gone with the Wind and the Sound of Music, but uh, there it was, and it was written by Buck Henry, so there was that. Uh, 
Uh, whether that's the greatest picture of all time we can discuss sometimes, it might well be. Uh, but the other thing is well, I did... We, yeah, yes. I don't think we need to discuss that. Yeah, no, we do. No. Uh, and uh, he... Uh, I'm not saying Sound of Music is the greatest, but... Yeah, but uh, no. no. But um, as an actor, I will say the one thing, one scene I remember more than anything, he, he always played kind of a nebbishy guy because he kind of looked that way. He was, you know, kind of a quiet, out there, nebbishy guy. He was in a movie called Defending Your Life that we saw together. Uh, in which uh, Albert Brooks is the main character. Yes, I remember that. Right. And the deal was that Albert Brooks was in an accident. He died, and it was a fantasy in which what you do, you have to defend your life. You have to show that you acted uh, with boldness, with courage, uh, in a way that's commendable, such that you should go to the higher place rather than the lower place. And it was set up, this fantasy included a courtroom in which there were scenes of your life shown, and there was a judge, and you had an advocate, and there was a district attorney, and these scenes were examined. Was Meryl Streep in this? Yes, she was. So he was. Meryl Streep was also uh, a uh, going through the same process at the same time as Albert Brooks, and she was like getting uh, standing ovations from all the judges, like you know, oh my God, I never saw anybody this fabulous. But Albert Brooks wasn't doing so well. So what's critical to him is how he did in these scenes, where uh, his lawyer had to stand up for him, and his lawyer, of course, was Buck Henry, and. The other side was heaping scorn on him, right? Heaping scorn um, and saying he acted uh, basically with uh, great cowardice here, that he's only looking at his own interests, that he doesn't deserve the consideration of the judges. And would go to Buck Henry's uh, uh, turn to speak, and he'd just say, uh, we're good. And he wouldn't say anything. So finally, and everything's on stake for Albert Brooks. He looks at uh, Buck Henry at one point. He says... Um, uh, are you sure about this? And Buckin returns to him, sort of a half smile and placid expression, says, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm quite good at this. And that's all he says. And uh, so um, anyway, it was a great line. Um, Buck Henry passed away. Very funny. And of course, he had years and years on Saturday Night Live. Um, so we wanted to talk about diners for just a moment. There was yeah, no there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about, um, you know, uh, innovative uh, young chefs, some of them uh, very well, very experienced, um, you know, buying uh, diners and, uh, you know, taking over modest little places and uh, trying to make them into something. Make them into something. Well, what struck me is two things. Number one, you said... Uh, coming from, uh, you know, not small places. You know, they're coming from very fancy places in which they have a lot of responsibility. They seem like they have big-time jobs in big-time uh, restauranting. And then they buy this diner in the middle of nowhere, which usually means upstate New York. And um, they're going, that's their new ambition, is to create the new dining experience in their diner. And it, you just kind of shake your head, really? Does that really work? Uh, apparently for some folks it does. Um, uh, and the way they go about it is uh, is interesting also. Well, yeah. I mean, there are different ways to go about it. Yeah. One is, uh, for instance, there's a um, woman, uh, oh, I'm losing her name here. Um, Mitchell is her last name. Molly Mitchell in Detroit, okay, has Rose's Fine Food. She says, 
I didn't want it to be super chefy, but diner food made with really good ingredients. Right. They all okay. take that approach. All right. So that's fine. Um, but it, the problem is what used to be a $4 lunch you know, um, becomes $24 lunch. And uh, in this yeah. case, Ms. Mitchell is trying desperately to hold it down to $12. Right. Uh, but if you're going to, you know, make your own mayo, That's what they're doing. They're making their own uh, mayonnaise. Uh, <clears throat> and they're buying locally. So they're making a big point. Buying locally, etc. These things are going to drive the prices up. And frankly, if, you know, most clientele... Not interested in. They're we'll interested see. in mayo they like. Yeah. They're not really concerned about whether you made it or well, you know uh, Mrs. Hellman made it. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's very tricky. I wouldn't mind going to a diner and having just really good diner food with like a really nice glass of real wine yeah. i mean that would be a fabulous meal and i would pay 12 dollars for, yes. for the well, good well, hamburger so that's and everything the else. problem but, but the question is but, but on, the, on the other hand we do have jersey is famous for diners and even in our little neighborhood you know our neck of the woods there have, there was a pretty traditional diner yeah that was now been upgraded to pretty fancy Food. It's not like it's a four-star restaurant, no. but it definitely has a different menu. It's not a place where you walk in breakfast all day and breakfast is, you know, um, two eggs, uh, toast, blah, right. blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and uh, people, including members of our own family, are pretty disappointed. It went from you walk being... in there, you want a simple meal, and they don't have a simple meal to offer you well, anymore. It, it went from being a one-star diner which was great, to a zero-star restaurant. So then there's no reason to go there at all. But the reason they're doing it is to make the check bigger. They think that's where the money is. And what's funny about this Dine article is they're going in exactly the opposite direction. They say, you know something? We can make money by offering the very simplest food that's a staple of the diner menu and just upgrading the ingredients, and people will pay for that. Maybe that's right. If it is, they should write a letter to the folks in Jersey because they don't know about it. But uh, it's like flying in the face of everything you know about economics. Again, you and I would pay $12 for a nice hamburger and hand-cut fries. But I don't think you can uh, make it that way. I, I just remember years ago, Yeah, years ago, um, 25 or 30 years ago, we actually went out to uh, dinner. We were meeting with some people to talk business. Yeah. And we said... Let's go to Country Joe's Diner. Huh. And they said to us, Diner? We haven't been to a diner in years. Who goes to diners? God, we used to go to and Country course, Joe's. We loved diners. With the kids. And uh, I remember when we took uh, Granger up to Connecticut, yeah. um, not that long ago, uh, to go to college. And we asked in the admissions office, so, you know, where can we grab a quick dinner? Where, you know, you have any diners around here? And they said, no, we don't have diners. That's a Jersey thing. Actually, they do now have diners in Connecticut. Um, well, but uh, and that was an odd question. So I feel like since we're from Jersey, and since we live in Jersey, um, most of the time we know diners. And it will be sad if uh, the simplicity of the 
amazing diner menu, yeah, which is like 15 pages long. Well, it doesn't have to be, but yeah. Um, disappears. Yeah, sometimes you just want simple food. And, uh, and, and you know, the conceit of these folks who are trying, it, uh, trying to upgrade it is that people pay a little more for even better simple food. I'm all for it in principle, but we'll see. Well, but what I'm saying is some people don't want simple food. Yeah, I guess not. Um, uh, so in any event, the Oscars. We, did, we just saw the Oscar list announced. Uh, so we'll have to sit this week and watch, hear people we complain digested it. about the nominations. But uh, a few things, um, two or three things jump out. Number one, Jojo Rabbit is nominated for Best Picture. I only, Hallelujah. I only mention that because I think that is the best picture, although I haven't seen everything. Um, we did see the, uh, I saw the Scorsese film, uh, and, um, the I didn't see all of it, mainly uh, because I fell asleep. Yeah. The, so that's my yeah. vote. So the short answer on that one is forget it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, we did see the, or at least I saw, um, the Tarantino movie. Um, uh, I think it's better than the Irishman, but not much. So I would forget that too. Uh, I don't know who's going to win. Well, well, we'll talk about that. But the funny thing is, so Jojo Rabbit's nominated, and so is, if you can believe it, Ford versus Ferrari, which we talked about. Which and I think is a, a good movie. It's a fun movie. We got one brother. Is to Little f- Women nominated? You know, I have to check. I have to I check. Think, I think it is. Yeah, I hope it is. I, I yeah. don't know. It might yeah. be. Um, uh, and, the, and the movie that uh, leads everything else in nominations is The Joker. With eleven nominations, and that's going to be a lot of hand wringing, because uh, what was it? Why one, is that? What one one review I read said that uh, you know if you're um, you know if you're considering suicide, this is the movie for you to see to convince you actually to commit suicide. I mean, it is there are some pretty harsh reviews of that movie. Uh, you know, even though people like technical aspects of it and love the performance of Joaquin yeah, Phoenix. We cannot talk about it because we have not seen it. You're right. You right. haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. So we don't know. No. It's just all hearsay. Yes. Not admissible. Now, it's, now, I'm not expressing a view of the movie, but I'll tell you right now, it's not the greatest look for the American Academy that that's their most nominated picture. Okay. Right, um, but we'll, uh, you know, we'll work on it. We'll have more to say on that. So, anyway. Uh, look, tonight, let me make it, uh, let me go back to the coaches. It's Mr. Smooth versus Mr. Rough. That's what you've got. Dabo Sweeney's Mr. Smooth and Clemson. And you've got LSU and Ed Orgeron, and it is Mr. Ruff. And that's a team that's been dying to have success for years and years. And I'm going for Mr. Ruff. He's my kind of guy. So I'm looking forward okay. to that game okay. today. And your record speaks for itself. I'm not predicting it from a perspective. Of, well, I am. I am. They should win. Okay. They're, they're going to win right. easily. Well, LSU. Let's go, let's go make that happen. All right. Um, uh, so this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan reading the paper. We're going to be back next week. See you then. Yes.